how much is that 6% worth to you and how much risk are you willing to take in terms of asset allocation, diversification, it's the key. This is Jason Yanotz, and you're listening to Empire. On today's episode, I sat down with Flory Marquez, the co-founder of BlockFi. BlockFi was just coming off of a massive multi-hundred million dollar raise on the day of recording. Uh, the raise valued them at over $3 billion. They, according to Flory, are the fastest growing fintech company of all time. So give this episode a listen, head over to blockworks.co forward slash newsletter, subscribe to our newsletter, and uh, yeah, let's enjoy the episode. All right. See you on the other side. Flory, I am so excited to have you on the show today. We're going to dig into BlockFi as a business and just talk about how crazy it must be to now be uh, one of the co-founders of this billion dollar unicorn crypto company. But I thought, first and foremost, I just want to say congratulations. We're recording this on the day that you guys just raised a boatload of money at, I think, what was nearly or at a $3 billion valuation. So congrats. Yeah, it's definitely been a crazy day. I'm getting a lot of love from friends and family and then just like random Twitter people. And it's definitely been um, amazing to wake up to. And it's not very often that people get to physically see the outcome of hard work, either in the news or um, through media. So uh, I'm very grateful to be able to have a day to kind of like celebrate everything that we've been building for three and a half years. Awesome. Have you been able to celebrate or is it all hands on deck still? Uh, not yet. I mean, the, the crazy thing about running one of the fastest growing fintech companies of all time, I'm pretty sure, which I've tried to fact check this and it's actually pretty hard to get stats. So if anyone has a company that's done it faster, like definitely let me know so that I can stop claiming that. But I think we're the fastest um, and yeah, it never sleeps. So there's always more work to do. And I think for better, for worse, one of our best qualities is that um, we're always looking towards the next thing. Um, so sometimes we're a little short when we celebrate the wins. We're just like, all right, cool. What's next? <laughs> yeah, I think that's the nature of building a business. So what um, So what happened today? So the press release comes out or TechCrunch covered you guys. We wrote a story about BlockFi's announcement. Did you get, can you tell us about a text that you received or a call from like a family member or like a high school friend? Or did anyone reach out that you're like, oh my God, I haven't talked to them in years? Yeah, I think um, my favorite texts are from people who actually don't work in startups that are kind of trying to understand the magnitude of it. So um, one of my friends is like runs his own like music producing business and he texted me and he was like, wait, so does this mean you're the COO of a multi-billion dollar company? And I'm like, <laughs> yes. And that is an insane thing to say because, you know, three and a half years ago, we were, Zach and I were just like two kids who had this idea and um, you know, we tried to give it our best shot. And I think anyone who starts a business and you know this as well, um, you don't plan for success, right? You plan to put your best foot forward and do everything that you can. But I think if your expectation is to have the success that we have, um, there, there's a lot of tests that happen along the way. So um, it's just incredible to be here. And I think it's definitely a, a pinch myself moment what does it actually feel like to, I mean, I know a lot of your wealth is now tied up in private startup equity, but what, what does that feel like? So I think completely, honestly, it feels like a huge responsibility. So, um, everything, I think what's really cool about Zach and I as founders is that everything that we have is what we built for ourselves. Um, both of us kind of, you know, didn't have a lot of family support um, growing up. So everything that we everything that we built is like what we worked for ourselves. And I think coming into success to me is like a responsibility to do good with it. And also, I don't have a lot of examples of how are you supposed to manage, <laughs> um, you know, your own portfolio and all these things. So there's a lot of learning to do both in managing a business and, you know, when these things happen outside of managing a business. We'll talk about why BlockFi is amazing, all that kind of fun stuff. But the first half of the conversation will focus on just your story and what it's been like to build what I think is the fastest growing fintech company of all time. So I think, uh, yeah, we can use that. We can use that until someone disproves us. So can you just tell me about your upbringing and your family's from Argentina? Like, how did that influence what you're doing now? Yeah, so I was the first person in my family to be born in the U.S. English is actually my second language. I didn't speak any English. And my parents just said, 
all right, we're going to send you to kindergarten and you'll just like learn the language on your own. Um, growing up, going between Argentina and the U.S. gave me a point of view in terms of like how cultures work and the differences between countries that a lot of people don't have access to. And so simple things that um, you know, we give for granted in the U.S., like the ability to have multiple credit cards and get things for free as a result of the credit card usage and having even access to a savings account. Many countries, many citizens in countries around the world don't have access to that. It was very humbling growing up to kind of see the differences between what my cousins were experiencing in Argentina and what I had access to in the U.S. So they really control what goes in and out of the country. So, for example, each individual is limited in the number of U.S. dollars that they can buy on a monthly basis. The Argentinian peso is extremely volatile. Um, and the concept that it's hard for people in the U.S. to wrap their minds around is like how hyperinflation can destroy an economy. So to contextualize it, when I was going down to Argentina when I was a kid, um, the exchange rate for the U.S. dollar was um, one to two. When I went to Argentina the last time, the exchange rate for the dollar was one to 85. So the value of everyone's savings and their purchasing power basically decreases every year that goes by. And it's so high that corporate tax rates are over 100%, which is something like we can't even imagine because the value of the peso is so much lower at the end of the year that the tax rate has to be that high. Really, their only recourse is a lot of times to have all their savings in cash, like stored under mattresses. Many people are just living week to week. And then on the socioeconomic level, it impacts um, individuals' drive to start their lives, right? Like, what's the point of graduating and getting a job and saving when everything that you earn is going to be worth less just by sitting there? And so there's a social impact to having an unstable government. And one of the most exciting things I think about crypto is actually stable coins and giving people an easy exit into the stability that we have in the U.S. dollar. I understand now why Zach, so Zach messaged me and said, you have to ask Flory about stable coins. So now, now yeah, <laughs> because it's like, it's one thing to like have cash in under your mattress, but to be able to use an app like BlockFi or, or Gemini or anything else that's available in, in Argentina and be able to store that digitally instead of, um, you know, in your home is, is a major game changer. Do you have users right now in Argentina? Yeah, we have users all over the world. Around 30% of our clients are from overseas and we've never actively marketed in other countries. Wow. So we have people like in Australia, in Japan, in India, in Argentina. Um, I think last week we just made our first US dollar loan to Peru. And it's incredible to me because I think it speaks to how much people in other countries need these financial products that they're willing to find us themselves organically and convert themselves without ever us having to do anything to reach out to that client. So I'm really excited over the next few years as we start to translate our website and our services and offer client service in different languages, because I think it's really going to make an impact in countries outside of the U.S. Totally. So let's talk about kind of the, um, you know, go from your childhood before BlockFi, I mean, you went to Cornell and then you had kind of worked in banking or sales and trading or something, something on Wall Street. Was it the dream to to be a banker or like what, what was the dream when you were, you know, what, you graduate college, you're like, I'm going to spend my life on Wall Street. Like, what, what was the dream here? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to like throw anyone under the bus, but if you like wake up and your dream is to be a banker, <laughs> I think there's like a little, there's some evaluation you have to do there. Yeah. But no, so I really knew that I had to be financially independent when I graduated and I had student loans that I had to pay off. Skill wise, I always, I had a hard time in college kind of figuring out what I had to do because, or what I should do, because I'm a generalist. It's not, some people are like amazing at engineering or amazing at calculus and they know, you know, you wanna go into the research space or you wanna go into education. For me, um, I'm just good at learning things from scratch and problem solving. And I was like, I don't know how you turn that into a career. I always was trying to like do more than my job, which is not what people want you to do in a, in a 20 year old financial institution. So they'd asked me to like update the deck and I would update their their 20 year old deck and then come back at them with like three new slides. And I'm like, this is really what I think you should present in terms of like 
you know, what I'm seeing in terms of PE ratios. And I remember <laughs> them like very politely being like, you know, we appreciate the extra work, but like delete, delete, delete. <laughs> and so after a couple years, I kind of knew that it wasn't the right fit. And, um, but I think having immigrant parents, there's a huge um, emphasis placed on job stability. And I, I think that's also just from a previous generation where like people just used to stay in their jobs much longer. Um, so I remember six months in calling my mom and saying like, I think I want to switch jobs and her saying like, you, you just haven't learned enough yet. Like you'll ramp up and you'll get used to it. And two years later it hadn't changed. So then I actually knew that I wanted to go into FinTech and was boarding a plane to go visit my friend in Spain. And I met a random guy on the airplane and we started talking and, and he asked me what I did. And I thought, I wonder if I should just tell this random stranger that I'm interested in switching jobs. Like that felt like a weird thing to say, but I was like, yeah, screw it, I'll just do it. And his best friend ended up being David Haber, who is the CEO of Bond Street, who had just raised a series A. And he was like, oh, if you want FinTech, like you should talk to my best friend. And that's how I got connected with him. So it's very like serendipitous. So I kind of like nagged my way into working at Bond Street. And then from there I transitioned into BlockFi. I think the lesson from this podcast should be always strike up a conversation on an airplane. Yeah, please talk to strangers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is a nice lesson for Did you at that point realize that you wanted to eventually build your own company in the fintech space or did that come later on? Yeah, I think one thing that I always did was look around the room and try to identify the person that I most wanted to emulate. Like who in this room do I respect? Who's the smartest person in the room? Whose job seems really cool? The idea of growing something from scratch was really interesting to me, but I never thought that it would happen as fast as it did. I think I was 25 years old and I always thought I would need a couple more years of experience. There's one piece of advice to anyone who's at a startup or wants to start their own business. It's to take as many jobs as you possibly can to learn everything, including the jobs that nobody wants. The jobs that nobody wants are probably the ones that are going to teach you the most. So at Bond Street, for example, like they needed someone to take care of loan servicing <laughs> and loan servicing is a pretty the dry topic. Yeah. How do you calculate interest and take a payment from someone's bank account at scale? And um, I was like, I'll handle that and I'll do my other job. And I also want to learn how to do credit underwriting. So at one point, I actually had three different jobs and I would just manage my day and work more hours to just be able to learn as much as possible. And so by the end of my time there, I was the head of portfolio management. So I was in charge of everything from how do you originate loans? How do you service them? Um, what do you do when businesses get in trouble? How do you help them get back on track with payments? That was when Bond Street went through the Aquahire process and the rest of the team was going over to Goldman Sachs. But I had a really interesting opportunity because there was a $125 million loan portfolio that Bond Street had outstanding. And if, if you can imagine, if we were to shut down the website then everyone who had borrowed those loans, sometimes what happens is people get confused and they think they no longer have to pay back their loan because mm. the website isn't working. And that's not the case. The investors wanted me and another colleague of mine to stay on to keep the website alive and continue servicing the portfolio. So I actually, at 25, ended up leading. I'd never done this before. I found a lawyer. I led an acquisition. I bought the servicing portion of Bond Street. And then I found myself basically with a full-time job and the flexibility to manage my own hours and do whatever I wanted to do. Um, wait, wait, wait. So you, so Bond Street gets acquired, you and like one other person stay on, you basically find a lawyer, acquire this loan book, and then you are now the CEO of this loan book? Pretty much. Okay. Are you... That's that's crazy. Are you and what what ended up happening with that? Are you still is there still this loan? Are these no, no, the these? loans pay down. They right. They, they, they had like an average um, life of around uh, two years. Right. So the loans were going to wind down and we would just get a servicing fee while the loans were still outstanding. But it was crazy because um, on one hand, I had the job stability of going to Goldman Sachs, which is like every immigrant's parent's dream is that their child eventually works for Goldman Sachs. And uh, this other crazy option of potentially being my own boss and like having to figure out my own medical insurance and doing this like crazy deal to manage the portfolio with one other person. 
I ended up having basically the ability to pay myself. And so I sat there and I was like, okay, I could basically travel the world and do this remotely, right? That'd be pretty cool. Like I can just go to a beach and hang out and do this job, but I'm a little bit of a crazy person. And instead I thought to myself, you know, I've never really felt like I've stretched my brain as, as like far as I can stretch it. What would happen if I did this job at night and started another company during the day? and use this second job to like pay myself so that I have time to start something from scratch. And that's when um, I started looking at my network. I saw that Zach had this idea to build BlockFi and that's how we teamed up. It sounds like a really sane thing to do. Just run two companies. <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard to do something from like nine to six or 7 PM and then come home and kind of like take a 10 minute break and then start a completely different job where the other people have no idea what you went through during the day. I'm obviously glad I did it. I don't, I don't know if I'd be able to do it again. <laughs> I feel the exact same way. So, so Mike and I, when we co-founded Blockworks, it was the end of 2017. He worked in consulting and I worked at this uh, data analytics company called SciSense. We would wake up at like 4.30 every morning. We would send LinkedIn messages, like hundreds of LinkedIn messages to people till like 7 a.m. to try to get them to come to BlockWorks events. Then we'd go to our job and then we'd come back and then send more LinkedIn messages and cold emails and cold calls. And it was just like, it was, it was a grind for six months. Yeah. And I think that that's like the really interesting thing about starting companies. And if there's one, one thing I can do with BlockFi and everyone who works at my company or anyone who like cares to listen to me speak, it's to kind of demystify how to do this, right? Like tell people like, yeah, you have to work two jobs. You don't have to already have, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars saved up to start it. Um, you know, your, your time is valuable. And if you can do extra work on the side to get something up and running until it can pay for itself, that's a completely legitimate way to start a business. Yeah. So you, so you meet up with Zach, um, you sync up with Zach. Did you know Zach before? Was it a friend? Of a, was he a friend of a friend? Zach worked at a company called Orchard, which was a data aggregator for loan originators. So Bond Street, my last company and Orchard um, worked together. Mm. And Orchard was always putting on these events. So I would always see Zach at the events. Zach had actually like pitched me their product <laughs> way back in the day. Um, I remember did, like- Did he sell you? Did it, did it work? Was it a good pitch? He, Zach is really, really good at selling <laughs> ideas. Like he, he, he's really good. And I just remember sitting there being like, who's this crazy redhead? So I knew him from that. And when I started looking around my network, that's when I saw like he had just quit his job to start this thing called BlockFi. And he had, you know, some job postings up on Angel. And so I pinged him and I was like, hey, what's up, dude? Do you want to talk? Like, you want to build a lending business? Like I know loans and the day before I had been sitting in the Goldman offices talking to like senior leaders there and they were going to make up this amazing job for me where I'd get to learn how to code and like make up products for Marcus, which was like my dream was to learn how to code and, and be able to work at the same time. But the second I sat down with Zach and he told me his idea and he was like, look, we're really early in the space. There aren't, there aren't many people building financial products or with financial services backgrounds, building in crypto, we could be some of the first people to build like a legitimate VC backed business and kind of be at the, at the beginnings of this thing, two things. It was something I knew how to do. So I knew loans backwards and forwards. I knew the regulators, I knew how to build it. I knew the lawyers we had to use. Um, and it also was something totally new. I didn't know that much about crypto at the time. And so the idea of being able to use what I knew and also work in something new and, and learn a new technology was just incredible. So I basically, from the second I sat down with him was like, yes, I would really like to work with you. So what is like, what is the, what is the first step to building a company like BlockFi? Do you hire like a, a web development agency? Cause it sounds like you wanted to learn how to code, but you weren't a coder. It sounds like Zach was not a developer. Like how do you build V1 get comfortable taking someone's money and giving them interest on it. Like what is, what, what, what was the first like 90 days of BlockFi? Yeah. So you know, this from, as, as from being a founder that like the first day when you, when you're sitting down and starting your business, you like sit down next to your co-founder and you're like, all right, so what do we do? Right? Like there's no boss. There's no one to like tell you what the timelines are. The reality is that like 
of all the things you can build, like lending is not the sexiest thing to build. <laughs> it's not that exciting. The first thing you do is you figure out the loan and security agreement. The first thing you do is find the lawyers and you're like, all right, how like legally can we do this, right? And the second thing that you do, which I actually think is really interesting for crypto is we built the model to manage the riskiness of the loan, right? So what you had to model out um, using the historical prices of crypto was how, how can I guarantee that if the prices are going down, I'm going to be able to liquidate a portion of the crypto and pay back the loan. And there's an entire formula that takes into account the liquidity of the market, the historical speed of how quickly prices move down. You put in some assumptions. And we didn't know how to build any of that ourselves. So we actually hired Renee Van Kesteren, who's our chief risk officer today, as an advisor. And he helped us build those models from scratch. And I think one of the things that's really interesting, if you're like a risk management nerd, like we are at BlockFi, when we started lending, everyone's lending model was different, right? Um, Salt at the time, Unchained, everyone had a different model and different interest rates. And over time, over the years, everyone converged into the BlockFi original model, which was our first loan was LTV at 35% and liquid uh, accelerated margin at 70 and you liquidated 80. And over time, the entire market converged to our model. And it's that's really cool because that model had never been built before. And for Renee to get that right on his first try is actually like extremely impressive. I'm definitely getting like way into the weeds of like risk management and modeling. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if, if folks want to go in the weeds, we're not going to do it now. But I think um, I think Renee went on Castle Island's podcast with Nick Carter and Matt Walsh. So if anyone does want to go into the weeds, that I think that would probably be a good place to send them. Yeah, Renee's a, a super genius. And I definitely recommend kind of like listening to him. In, in another life, he could have been a professor. One of my favorite early BlockFi stories is when you guys got confused with a pawn shop is, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> is what I've heard through the grapevine. So what, what's yeah. that story? What happened there? If you want to make loans in the U.S., the thing that's really complicated is that the rules are different state by state. So in some states, you need a license. And in some states, you're fine without a license. And I knew from my time at Bond Street that the hardest state to get a license in was California. So I was like, all right, if we're going to start this, let's go for the hardest one first, because that one's going to take the most amount of time. And when I applied to the state of California, we were actually the first lender to actually explain to them fully what we were trying to do. Um, There were actually other lenders who had gotten a license, but they hadn't mentioned that they were touching crypto, which is like, Mm. everyone everyone does things their own way. Uh, We like to do things like very open book to share everything with um, regulators so that they can make a decision and also let us know what we have to change. And they had never seen anything like this before. They were like, if you're lending against an asset, why are you going to take it away from someone? Like when people make car loans, they don't take the car away from the borrower. And the answer to that question is because crypto is similar to cash, it's fungible, right? Like I have no guarantee as a lender that you haven't spent all your crypto unless I have control over it. So. It was very difficult to explain that to the regulators. And they were like, no, 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 no. If you're taking stuff from people, then you're actually a pawn shop. You're not a lender. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think you're thinking about this right. Like, this is probably closer to like how people think about borrowing against, you know, art or or different types of assets. And then they basically said, no, no, you have to, you, you're definitely a pawn shop lender. And so the next step for me was like, all right, if they're telling me I'm a pawn shop lender, I should just try to get this license. And I start looking it up and really the only way to get Which a license, a license Wait, to, get a, to get a pawn shop license, a, a pawn shop license oh. in California. And I was like, all right, if you're telling me to do this, like I'm going to try because that's the only way that I'm going to either get a license or prove to you that you're wrong. And the only way to get that license in California is actually city by city. So I chose SF and I called their police department because that's the 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 entity that's in charge of these licenses and i literally was on a phone with a police officer kind of like trying to explain the business and he actually understood crypto better than the regulators at the time and he said to me no 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 pawn shops are only for physical goods 
crypto is a digital asset. So you're a lender, you're not a pawn shop wow. <laughs> license. Back to square one, back to the regulators. You know, it's definitely a lot messier than I would have liked it to be. I wish that, um, you know, sometimes you could just get on the phone with people and kind of explain and, and get to the same place in just a phone call. But I think that's one thing that I look out for the crypto space is that regulatory development is going to be gradual and slow and cautious. Um, and I think that's the right way for it to happen because I, I want it to be built the right way. So did the regulators ever apologize to you? <laughs> we did get a phone call that was like, we're sorry, you were yeah. right. Nice. Let's jump a little deeper into BlockFi now. So let's, you guys had this amazing announcement today that we've talked about briefly. Can you just run us through some of the numbers, employees, revenue, users, uh, AUM, whatever you're comfortable sharing there? Yeah. Um, so on the revenue side, I think, what are, what are you printing? We said between <laughs> 500 and 600 million, right? Yeah, I think I think the number I saw was fifty million a month in revenue. Which yeah, is so there we go, six hundred million annual. Yeah, yeah. So the the reason why I'm asking is because some of our revenue is denominated in the price of crypto, and so um, that moves a little bit month to month. And I know we're I think we're hitting all time highs as we speak, so it actually yeah. might be a little higher. And I'm like um, looking off at like my chart on the right, like just watching the numbers yeah, go up. So. As we're talking, it's going yeah. up, which is amazing. Um, Employee wise, that is the one that blows my mind. Like at this time last year, we were 90 employees and we're 500 employees wow. around the world. I manage operations, client service and people operations. At the beginning of the quarter, we had six people on the team. By the end of Q1, we're going to have 56 people um, around the world working on CS. And uh, that's one of the things that's like most important to me. Like at the core of what we do, it's developing client trust and having an amazing team that can handle our clients and answer any questions that people have. Like that's really, I think one of the biggest differentiators from our platform. And when we went into this year and we had like 50% month over month growth in January and February it was amazing, but I didn't have enough client service people to handle that many clients. So we're gonna have the team that we need to keep growing. Um, so and assets under management, I think we're like, close to 15 billion in assets under management. Um, and it's growing every single day. Um, I think it was like early 2018 or mid 2018. I was sitting in Pomp's office back when, when he was at Morgan Creek and like, yeah, mid 2018. And I think we were waiting for Meltem to come in for a podcast interview and Zach was sitting there. And at BlockFi, I mean, you guys must've had 20 employees or 50 or you guys weren't that big yet. I think you had raised one or maybe two rounds. And Zach walked out of the room and Pomp said, this is going to be the biggest company in crypto. <laughs> so. I will say that there's a couple people who saw it really early on and Pomp has been one of them. Like he's just like an amazing person to have like as an investor. Like he has like this like loud Twitter persona and he's like completely different when he's like looking at our financials and like helping us like decide what we need to do next to grow the business. So it's been awesome working with him. Yeah. You mentioned your hire, you went from like six people to like 50 people on the client services side. So those are more like junior people, right? What's it been like hiring people who have come from, you know, C-suite at American Express and people like Renee and managing these people who are, have had these storied, you know, 30 year careers in financial services. And now you and Zach, who are relatively young, are managing these like pretty big time, quote unquote, powerful execs. Yeah. One of the things that's really important about being a founder is to know what you don't know, right? Like there gets a point in every single company and team size where someone's out there who knows how to do that exact thing, which much more experienced and better than you. And having the humility to be able to identify what the weak points are and to solve for that um, is extremely important to running a successful business. So um, Renee and David Spack, who are on our C team, they were advisors actually since before we raised any funds. So we've been working alongside them the beginning. Um, as we bring on more senior talent, I, I honestly think it's something we're really like, we're, we're really lucky to be able to do, right? Like not a lot of companies can identify like, hey, I need a new head of global asset management. And we have like the capital and the ability and the brand to be able to attract that type of talent. So. I mostly feel grateful. And on the other end of things, like I just hired um, 
a VP of institutional operations who went to your point when I started my career, I think Mike would have been probably my boss's boss, maybe that person's boss. And now he's on my team um, and running institutional operations for me. It definitely takes um, humility and kind of an open-mindedness to know that, you know, there's some things that I'm going to be able to help Mike do um, to run faster and build the business because I know BlockFi better than anyone. But I'm also going to be able to learn a lot from watching him work and to kind of have the humility to give senior leaders the space to run and to and to kind of know, look, we're all trying to build the best business we can um, and to hire people that are comfortable with that and, and make sure that we can all, you know, build the best company we can. Yeah. What's the selling point? Like when you're pitching someone like Mike to come on board, do they care about equity? Do they care about salary and compensation? You obviously have to pitch the vision. Like how's it been, you know, one-to-one kind of quote unquote selling or pitching these people to join BlockFi? I think that especially in the world that we find ourselves in today, they want to build something that works and they want to have a direct impact on kind of like the future of how the world's going to look. And for individuals that are coming from financial services that have also lived through the cycle, like the insanity of the 80s and different economic booms and busts, they identify like this crypto wave and what we're building at BlockFi as like the next wave for financial services. So I think the thing that senior leaders care about most is to be able to be innovative again and to be able to shape the future. Um, And obviously, having some some skin in the game with options in a company that has so much potential future growth um, doesn't hurt. Back in March of last year, Zach and I realized that with everyone moving inside, um, everyone was going to be locked in and looking at their computers. And there was a lot of uncertainty. And so a lot of companies were pulling back on marketing spend. But Zach and I actually saw that as an opportunity. And I said, look, like you have three options. You can either, you know, duck the wave, crash into the wave or ride the wave. And at BlockFi, we were like, let's ride the wave. And so as soon as everything started crashing and people started going home, we actually doubled our marketing spend in March of last year. And when we went into our board meeting, we made this insane slide where the title of it was we will not participate in this recession as we're like looking down like the barrel <laughs> of the gun that was COVID. Um, we were like, yeah, we're, we're just going to ride this. We're going to keep growing the business. We're not going to let this stop us. And in all honestly, honesty, that's like really hard to do emotionally. Like a part of me was like, this is really stressful and a scary time. Um, but we just like buckled down and we said, look, we need to just have courage and like be brave and just keep building and not let this stop us. And it ended up definitely being the right choice in the long term. And we ended up having, you know, an incredible year last year. Yeah. When you think about competition, I feel like as an outsider looking in, I'd bucket it probably in like three buckets. You have uh, kind of like other crypto lenders that people know of, and then more traditional banks, maybe who might offer this stuff. And then more like fintech companies. Is there one group that you're like, are you more nervous about the the Coinbase's and the Gemini's and the Celsius's of the world or like the JP Morgan's and the Goldman's of the world or like the brokerages or like the fintech? Who do you kind of keep your eye on? I think it'll take a very long time for banks to move into this space because of just like the higher bar that they have for regulatory purposes. And also, it's just like a lot bigger to move a big bank like a JP Morgan into crypto. It's a much bigger machine. So it's not as nimble as a smaller company. Um, so I think we have some time there. Like banks today still don't use crypto as part of their underwriting for a mortgage, which was why Zach started this company. And that's I just, insane I just, to me. I just went through that, actually. It was a horrible process. <laughs> yeah. And you like ask them, you're like, all right, like, how do you think about my assets and my ability to pay back the loan? And they're like, no, no, no crypto doesn't count for anything. And that doesn't make any sense. Like you can sell it at any point for cash. It just, it's very aggravating. So yeah. it's going to take them a very long time if like, crypto's at like 57,000 and they still aren't counting it as an asset. In terms of other crypto companies, one thing I really believe in is that we're so early in the story of crypto that I don't really like believe in kind of like knocking each other down. Like we need more crypto companies that are building in the right way in the space because it's not about like block five versus Celsius, right? It's about every person out there who doesn't own crypto 
and how can we get them to buy their first Bitcoin? And the more options that people have, I just think of that as more channels for conversion. And so something that like kind of frustrates me when I'm on Twitter sometimes is like a lot of like the, the, the negative comments that can go between companies. And it's like, we should be lifting each other up. We should be like championing new, new companies coming in. I want more competition. I want more people that are like advertising on like Facebook and Instagram and like spreading the word because that's how the space is going to grow. And we're too early to be kind of like thinking about like one versus the other. I think a lot of folks know BlockFi for the interest account or uh, the retail lending. Probably some folks know that you guys have retail trading now, right? Trading without fees. You have the credit card payments or the the uh, Bitcoin credit card that's coming out. But can you talk a little bit about the institutional business and like what that even means? Yeah. So the institutional side of the business is really what allows us to offer products like the interest account. So what we do is we take deposits and if you send us cash that immediately gets turned into stable coin, you can also just send us crypto. We take all of those assets and this is really important and we lend it out to institutional investors, typically in the same asset type that that clients are lending to us, right? And that matters because a lot of people ask like what's gonna happen when the price of crypto drops and the reality is that we're lending in the same asset type. So they pay us interest denominated in Bitcoin, and then we flow that Bitcoin interest to our consumers, and then we make a spread in the middle. You can kind of think about it as a marketplace. The institutional side of the business um, is, you know, they, they have a sales team. So that's in charge of going out to old school traditional financial houses like Acuna Capital, Susquehanna, Fidelity, and a lot of those institutions have also invested in BlockFi. And we basically either introduce them to crypto for the first time, or we help fuel their existing trading strategies. We also have an OTC desk, we have a private client desk. A lot of what we do is taking uh, old school financial products and applying them to crypto and presenting it in a way that traditional investors can understand and they're used to working in. So you mentioned uh, Susquehanna. Let's actually, I wanna dig deeper into that just to make sure people really understand like what's what's going on under the hood here. Um, so Susquehanna, right, they, they trade, they make money, they're a trading firm. So they want to borrow Bitcoin from BlockFi. Retail will put their Bitcoin on BlockFi, BlockFi, gives them interest on it. You then lend it out to Susquehanna. Why does Susquehanna want that Bitcoin? Over the last decade, um, traditional finance has been in search of yield. So there's been a lot less volatility and a lot less ability to generate yield through trading strategies. And so everyone that works in crypto knows it's extremely volatile. Volatility is opportunity. And this is huge for traditional financial institutions because now they have a new area where they can generate yield through traditional trading strategies. So the reason why Susquehanna would want to borrow crypto instead of buy the Bitcoin that they're trading with themselves is because when you buy Bitcoin, you're taking a, a price bet, right? You're, you now own it on your balance sheet and you're betting whether or not it's going to go up or down. For a lot of these trading strategies, they just need to have, like, let's say it's something simple, like an arbitrage between two exchanges, right? Like, let's say the price of Bitcoin is different on one exchange and the other, and you can quickly sell on one and buy on the other. Um, you can borrow the crypto from BlockFi and place that trade and make the yield without ever placing a bet on whether Bitcoin's going to go up or down. So that's like one of the basic reasons why they would borrow it, really because they don't want to hold it on their balance sheet and also to fuel their trading strategies. Got it. Makes sense. The other question that I, so I, I posted on Twitter, I said, my friend is considering putting a hundred, she has a hundred thousand dollars in Bitcoin. She's considering putting all of it onto BlockFi. True story. Um, I said, good idea or bad idea? Got like I, 500 I, responses and like 1200 oh people were freaking out. And they said there was a range of absolutely not to Absolutely. Yes. I already do that too. Well, probably the safe options, like put 20% on what, well, my first answer is, and to anyone watching this, like, please, please, for the love of God, turn on 2FA and whitelisting. Um, <laughs> 
our products are not FDIC insured and, and, you know, hackers are out there and once crypto is gone, it's gone. So if you have a hundred thousand dollars worth of crypto or any amount of crypto, please turn on the security settings on, on any account that you're using, not just BlockFi, including your Gmail, but in terms of asset allocation, diversification, it's the key, right? I'm not going to tell you to manage your portfolio in a different way that I would manage my business. Um, I've, I don't think anyone should have a hundred percent of their assets in one place, right? Like that's not how I manage my fiat. So, um, I think crypto is the same way where it's really up to each individual's risk tolerance. Like how much is that 6% worth to you and how much risk are you willing to take? And from that you can back into, all right, maybe I want to keep, you know, 50% of my assets at Gemini, 25% with BlockFi, um, and day trade the rest of the 25%. But I really do believe in portfolio diversification, um, and I think that's true for any asset. You mentioned insurance. What's um, like why doesn't BlockFi have FDIC insurance, and what are the steps to get there? Um, so FDIC insurance doesn't exist for crypto. <laughs> that's the short answer. Insurance doesn't exist for our types of products. If it was easy to get, trust me, I would get it. Um, and so I think the path forward in terms of insurance is we really have to, like everything else that we've done at BlockFi, build it ourselves and build a model of like self-insurance or passing insurance through. It's something that I would love to have on the platform. And I think if we had it, I would feel much more confident telling your friend to put more on the BlockFi platform than you know a percentage of her portfolio. I love the idea of insurance. There's a million things we have to build, but that's very important to me. And I can tell you that uh, we're working on it, but I can't promise any dates. Got it. All right, I'm done drilling in. I think uh, people can, <laughs> you guys have good support. So if people really have questions for BlockFi, they can uh, reach out to your support team. I have a few more and questions. And also watch Renee's podcast because he's like so much more technical than I am, right? Like I'm the builder. I yeah. know how to hire 500 people and like get everyone to run in the same direction. Like Renee's your technical guy. Yeah, so go listen to, uh, what is it? Castle Island's podcast with Nick Carter and Renee. Um, I have a few more questions here to wrap it up. When you guys raised 30 million, I remember... I think it was you who said, we're going to do three things with that 30 million. We're going to build a mobile app. We're going to get better bank integrations and we're going to build a credit card with Bitcoin rewards. What are you going to do with, how much did you guys raise today? Uh, I think 350 million. So, okay. So with 30 million, you could do that. What do you do with the headline number? Yeah. What do you do with 350 million? Um, so the reality is continue to build the business and diversify our products, right? So, so far the credit card waitlist has had, I think over 120,000 people sign up for the waitlist. Um, that's a lot bigger than what anyone was telling us we'd be able to get. So I think we need to meaningfully expand the business there, you know, diverse options in terms of how you use those products, expanding overseas. Um, you know, there's a million different things that we need to build. And um, we know exactly how we're going to put those assets to work. And I think what you're going to see is continued rapid growth and expansion of our products. Nice. Uh, you've got a nice little war chest now. If you, I'm assuming you'll end up making a few acquisitions. Can you give a little preview of how you're thinking about uh, the M&A space? Yeah. Um, I think we, we really think about companies that could bring synergy to what we have. Um, so I think about, you know, teams, cultures, and products that are additive to what we're building at BlockFi or accelerate our timeline into building in that space. It's like, how do we scale client service faster? Like, what are the solutions to building that? So, yeah, I think we look at products, teams, and culture that help us accelerate our roadmap and get to where we want to be faster. Amazing. Uh, how frequently do you guys get acquisition offers? Oh, for us? Yeah. Um, I think increasingly less now that we're worth $3 billion, right? <laughs> like the, the pool gets smaller and smaller. Um, but I think, I think back on a few that we had like early on and it's funny to, to just think about like what, what people thought we were willing to give up. And it's yeah. like, we're not giving anything up, right? We're yeah. going to keep building this. The business is working. Uh, we're going to keep scaling it and we're, we're the right team to do it. Yeah. When do you think an IPO comes? So I think the time really one thing to keep in mind is as founders and, and you know this, 
our job is to create as much optionality as possible, right? So I do think there's a version of our story where it probably makes sense to stay private. There's different factors that can affect us. Like if we go into an economic recession, right? Like you don't really want to go public in the middle of that. And then on the on the other hand, right, there's a lot of benefits to going public early. So a ton of our clients want to invest in our business. And unfortunately, like every single round, it's been a battle to just get our existing investor space to invest in BlockFi. Hmm. And one thing that Zach and I want to do is to make it available to our long-term supporters to be able to like participate in our future growth. And so one thing that that we would love is if we do go public to do it as early as possible so that there's still upside for our supporters. I, I think the timeline realistically is probably like if we do all all steam ahead 18 months from now. Um, but as we talked about earlier, this is crypto and regulators move slowly with us. So it's probably a little bit more complicated than your average fintech IPO. Nice. Um, we'll wrap it up with two questions and then you can ask me one question if you want. Um, what's the most controversial decision you've ever had to make at BlockFi? Hmm. I think probably instilling a culture of letting go of people quickly. Um, it's a piece of advice that I got from my former boss, which was, you know, you're growing quickly and every once in a while you're going to hire someone that isn't the right fit for your team. But what's more important is to protect the amazing rock stars that you have. And I think the first time that we had to make those decisions, it was pretty difficult because a lot of companies, and I'm sure anyone that's watching this works with people who aren't great at their job and, and maybe don't pull their weight. And it's really distracting as an employee to be next to that person. And as the person in charge, it's also one of the worst experiences that, that I can have is to like take someone's job away. But the reality is that you know, protecting the team and making sure we can keep moving fast and keeping like our rock stars motivated and engaged, that's really the important thing. So I definitely think that's probably the hardest and most controversial value that we had to instill. Um, but for better or for worse, I, I do think it's better for the business. Hmm. Yeah, that resonates. Yeah, with Block, Blockworks has been around for like three years now. The hardest day by far was when we had to lay off someone. Uh, or a few, right when COVID started, we had to lay off a few people just because we saw kind of what was coming and we're an events events and media company and it was a tough time for the events business. And that was just brutal to take someone's job away. It's, I think, the hardest thing to do. And I, and I think a lot of people when they start businesses don't think about that, that like now you're in charge of these decisions and you're kind of like deciding people's future. Um, and, and it's a big responsibility. Yeah. Um, last question here. What is one thing about BlockFi or about yourself um, that you haven't shared publicly yet that maybe people don't know about you or people don't know about the company? Uh, let's see. Things that people don't know about me. Um, trying to think of something new. Uh, well, one, I'm like a huge nerd. <laughs> like basically the only thing I read is sci-fi. Um, like I just love like reading sci-fi, watching sci-fi shows. Like I love The Expanse. I love like Magic the Gathering if nice. I'm like going full nerd. <laughs> nice. yeah. Like I love drafting. It's so much fun. It's like the first thing I'll do on a Saturday morning is like boot <laughs> up MTG Arena and nice. just like draft. So yeah, I don't think I, I talk about that a lot, but yeah, full nerd here. Nice. I, honestly, there's a... Uh... A lot of uh, magic folks and uh, sci-fi sci-fi geeks in the crypto space. So I've been telling this to our marketing team for so long. I was like, we've got to advertise BlockFi on like the like YouTube Magic the Gathering oh, like definitely. shows. Yeah, I tell feel like Chris, there's like a huge crossover. Uh, yeah, tell Chris to get that going or whoever's doing that these days. That's uh, that's great. We can wrap this up um, with one question for me if you want. Yeah, I would say that um, you know. I, I can assume that COVID was like an extremely challenging time for you as a founder. And I think, you know, you talked about having to do layoffs, but it kind of does feel like we have a line of sight into at least at least having some control over knowing what this next year is going to look like for us. Um, as you think about like 2021 planning, um, how are you thinking about like shaping your team and the growth of your company? Yeah, that's a good question. So going back to COVID last March, I mean, crazy, 
you were talking about the 50% drawdown one day, March 12th, we, our revenue fell 80% month over month. So like January and February of last year were incredible for us, like record months. And then just like right out of the gate, our revenue fell 80%. And it was just, I mean, it was pretty, definitely the toughest thing I've ever gone through. Had to lay off a few people. Um, but since then, I mean, we ended the year with eight employees. We're up to 15 now. We're hiring seven more. So we'll be at 22 by the end of hopefully this month if we can hire quickly enough. And then we'll probably end the year, double, we'll double again from here. So we'll probably end the year around 30 employees. So things are, things are looking up, things are looking bright. I mean, we're you know, pretty optimistic about just COVID in general and you know, like getting back to in-person events. But at this point, it's, it's actually been probably the best thing that's ever happened to our business because it's forced us to diversify, which you hit on several times and just lean heavier into you know, we, we launched our editorial site, we hired reporters from places like Bloomberg and Coindesk and American Banker, and we launched in-house podcasts like this one, and we launched webinars. And really, I mean, I think we were kind of leaning on events beforehand and just having someone completely cut that off and take that away from us was tough in the first few months, but it's been one of the best things that's ever happened. So. Yeah. And I'll, I'll leave you with one thing. I do think that your editorial site is like some of my favorite, like UI design in terms of like the cleanliness of it. Oh, <laughs> it's like one of my favorite sites. Well, shout out wheelhouse. Who's our, our agency who helped us on that. Yeah. We spent, we spent eight months on it. Uh, so like just interviewing people and we wanted it, we basically wanted to create a site that felt, you know, if you took a 50 year old gray haired hedge fund manager, um, you know, something that, he or she would feel comfortable sending to their colleagues. So happy that you like it. Love it. Cool. Well, Flory, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. You know, folks can find you on Twitter. I'm sure everyone should go to blockfi.com. They actually do have pretty crazy support that you can call. I've picked up the phone and just called them. So I'd recommend folks uh, check out BlockFi. And um, yeah, Flory, thanks again for, uh, for coming on the show. I'm rooting for you guys. Thank you. Great to see you. Yeah, you too. That was Flory Marquez, the co-founder of BlockFi. To learn more about BlockFi, you can head over to blockfi.com. Uh, Flory's on Twitter as well. Let me know what you thought of the episode. Shoot me a message on Twitter. My DMs are open. Uh, and if you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on Apple, give it a five-star review. Follow us on Spotify. If you're listening on YouTube, punch that subscribe button. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time for another episode of Empire.